Warning. The following episode will contain Death by Can-Can. Talk of death. Strong language. Creepy old ladies. Existential mouse dread. Meditations on life. And the following episode will contain Human Dolls. Welcome to the Band Library Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. My name is S.D. Harker, librarian, writer, Taco Tuesday enthusiast. You can follow me on Twitter, at BandWriter. You can follow the library, at BandLibrary on Twitter. Also Instagram, Facebook, the AOL message board, fucking libraries. But I don't pay attention to most of those other than Twitter. If you'd like to help support the Band Library, go to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash bandlibrary. Link in the post on on the website. For a dollar a month, just $12 a year, you can become a member of the Friends of the Band Library and get access to damn near everything we've ever posted going back at least 2,000 years. And get your name read on the show right here. Today, we are talking about Good Night Moon by Margaret Wise Brown, illustrated by Clement Hurd. Good Night Moon has sold more than 2 million copies since it was published in 1947 and has never been out of print. It's a very popular book. Why has it been banned, you say? I don't know. We'll get to that shit. First, we're going to talk about the authors. Margaret Wise Brown is probably one of the more interesting people I've ever researched for this show. Like, I had to stop researching and, like, cut out a bunch of stuff. If you've there's a bunch of, I put some of the sources in there, but there's other articles in the New Yorker and a couple. She was just a fascinating socialite and educator, or at least student of education, I guess is the way. But also just a strange eccentric. I kind of dig her. Uh, she was known as Brownie to her friends. She was born in Brooklyn, New York, May 23rd, 1910, to Robert Bruce and Maude Johnson Brown. She was educated on private schools in Switzerland and Massachusetts, so... Once again, super rich, before receiving a B.A. degree in English from Holland's College in 1932. She studied at the Bureau of Educational Experiments, a combined nursery progressive research institute, sort of one of those avant-garde kind of schools. It's mostly on child behavior. So they were a learning institute, one of those, in New York City. She quickly understood uh, how children saw the world, their developmental per, uh, of perception, I guess is what they said. She didn't think she was a teacher, though, so she began writing children's books. She was like, I can educate, but just not to their stupid faces. She served as the editor of children's books for William R. Scott, Inc. Publishing Company from 38 to 42, and she promoted the genre of early childhood literature based on the kids' normal experiences. So basically, and this is what sort of got this book banned, she thought we should talk to kids on their level. 
hey, kid, you know, you see shit. This is how the world kind of is for you. Here's how it could be for everybody. You know, that kind of thing. Rather than the common nomenclature, get that to get kids to read, you'd have to activate their imagination with like dragons and princesses or talking fra- frogs and shit. She was like, no, let's do it real. She has celebrated it as a revolutionary for these picture books and for the quality of them. She looked basically at the sights, sounds, smells, their concerns about being lost, alone, found, protected. She was basically a Mr. Rogers kind of figure. She wrote these books to connect with the children as well as bring them up. And it actually kind of works. And to teach them very basic concepts. I, I, it's it, The more I looked at it, it's crazy. Especially the rate that she did them. Again, like Mr. Rogers, honestly, if these two had ever gotten together, it would have been an amazing collaboration because she really did foster that sort of weird, wacky kindness that I believe he did, as well as his aptitude for work. I mean, look at the man. He put out like almost a thousand episodes of that damn show or some nonsense. It's crazy. But she put out almost a couple hundred books and all most of them sold damn well. Uh, Let's see. She used different names, including Golden McDonald, Juniper Sage, Kate Tuck Brown, Timothy Hay, which just shows the misogyny of the time that she had to use men's names to get things published. It was, like I said, more than over 100 books, including The Noisy Book, The Runaway Bunny, and Goodnight Moon, even receiving a Caldecott Medal in 1947 for The Little Island. She fought, she was also not just an advocate for children, she fought for her illustrators. She wanted them to get the same royalty she did, which makes damn sense, right? Most of the kids are going to look at the pictures first, not just the content. She spent, she did spend her money, though, when she got it on pretty bald shit. Uh, she bought a street vendor's entire cart of flowers with her first royalty check. She'd sell stories to buy things like coats, to buy a car, or just tickets to Europe if she wanted to go. She, like I said, a huge socialite. She counted in her people of friends, the Prince of Spain, Juan Carlos, uh, John Barrymore, and one of his wives. I didn't have a thing here. Michael Strange. These were all movie stars. She was rich to have a long-term affair with a prominent New York attorney and with Michael Strange. She had a couple of houses. One was a writer's retreat up in Vinyl Haven, Maine. I think I'm saying that right. That she called the only house. Uh, she had a, It had no electricity, so she used a well as the um, thing. So she'd have all these socialite guests over and then go over to the well and pull out like this big long string that had butter and stuff on it. And I read one story where she would randomly put uh, wine in the streams along the hiking paths so that as people were walking by, they could be like, oh, there's a bottle of wine. Let's have a nice little sit down and have a drink. She's just awesome. She did one thing in her New York. She apparently, there was one story where she was walking by a little house in the middle of Manhattan and was like, oh, this is the cutest fucking house. And she rented it out and would just have extravagant parties and always had people over. But she had a thing for being seen. So she didn't want to see as a bad gardener. So she'd tie fruit to the trees. Just very interesting and eccentric lifestyle. 
Unfortunately, that came to an end in 1952. Uh, sorry. Uh, she was going to be married to James Stillman Rockefeller Jr., grandnephew of John D. Rockefeller. You know, you may have known that guy from all the shit that he did and the people he probably oppressed, but Rockefeller Center is named after him. He was named Pebble, too, by the way. Uh, not John D., but the one he was gonna, she was going to marry. But while traveling in France, around Nice, I think, she had an appendectomy, and she, she was kind of afraid of it, but everything went well until she was recovering, and a nurse or a doctor, I heard both on different stories, asked how she was, and she said, oh, I'm grand. She jumped up and did like a can-can dance, like the you know Rockefeller Center dancers, and that released a blood clot that killed her, that caused an embolism and killed her instantly on November 13th, 1952. So an eccentric, wild, very fashion-forward, as far as education goes, as far as her life goes, she just burned bright, man, and went out really fast. And she will be missed, because damn, she's left an impression on, from what I can tell, everyone she met, and has been lost to the sands of time. And that's really fucking sad, honestly. A Clement Hurd was her, the author, or no, the illustrator of Goodnight Moon. He was born in New York City as well, son of a banker. Graduated from Yale University, studied another year at Yale School of Architecture. He studied painting with Fernand Ledger at Paris and returned to New York to become a freelance designer. During World War II, he spent four years in the Army Air Corps and entered Bank Street College. He was encouraged by Margaret Weiss Brown. I don't know how they met. I assume he had been doing illustrations around the city, much like our last episode, People saw things in advertisements and connected it that way. Maybe he'd done some other things. Uh, oh, wait, no, here it is. He had, when he enrolled in Bank Street College of Education in the late 30s, that's when they met because they were both in the education field. Oh, that's nice. He did meet there um, Edith Thatcher, a Missourian who had attended Radcliffe College, which got to love the name Thatcher from Missouri. Maybe there was some Mark Twain connection there. Together, him and his wife wrote and illustrated more than 40 books. So, of course, they probably, him and Margaret Wise Brown probably connected some way in form in the literary circles. He frequently tele- tested his illustrations on children. As young as three years old, he'd just walk up to kids and be, or I guess he would, or maybe he did it in the schools. And he'd say, Yeah, what do you think about this book? And if they liked it, he'd, you know, keep going in that style. He wrote, uh, Barbara Bader wrote about him, quote, Using flat forms and broad generalized outline, composed over a large area hanging loose, Mr. Hurd worked then the way the children think of working, setting down how things seem, the idea of things, unquote. I like that idea. He sort of went with Margaret Wise Brown. They sort of had a good collaboration as far as the way they worked. They worked at the kids' level, seeing how they saw things and writing and drawing and writing how they saw things. The children, the audience, which, I mean, you would think most people would know that, but most people didn't. Most people went with the highfalutin, get the the best artist. You know, you have this realistic knight fighting a very realistically drawn dragon. And while it's impressive, small children also kind of go towards small children's drawings. Things that they've seen, things that they know. It's very... The more I read into this book, the more I liked it. In 1988, unfortunately, 
Mr. Hurd died of a convo- in a convalescent home. Uh, he had a bout of a- Alzheimer's in his later years and passed away. And those are our creators. Two very interesting people who lived, if not dynamic lives, uh, definitely different from one another, but with a shared vision. And I kind of like that. That's why this book, I think, has endured so much. It's just... It was made with a singular passion to connect with children and to give them something on their level. And it works. Now, why were we talking about it? Mentioned that before. Well, 1947, when the book was published, the New York Public Library, uh, headed by the librarian, children's librarian, Anne Carol Moore, she hated it. For the same reasons, the reason it succeeded, that it connected with children on their level, she thought it was garbage because they had the publishing industry. And I'll say right now, Anne Carol Moore was a huge advocate for um, children reading. I'm not going to disparage her at all. Looking into a lot of her actions, she was hugely progressive. She would give library cards to damn near any kid that came up and asked for a book. She forgave fines all the time. If you think of a modern children's librarian, Anne Carol Moore would probably, in behavior, be the children's librarian you would want to be. She made it so easy for every child, not just the white kids, but every child in the New York area, New York City area at least, to have a library card and to get a book in their hands. And that's commendable, and it's great. Uh, she was very old-fashioned in her reading taste, though, and unfortunately was very influential. Like, literally, she had, uh, supposedly, I say literally, pff, supposedly she had a stamp that said to be published. And she was an editor of a lot of children's literary review mags. So if she didn't like the book, libraries damn near across the nation would not buy that book. And because libraries for most of the century were the number one way for kids and people to find books and for the publishing industry to sell books. That really affected a book. If this one woman did not like your book, the New York Public Library didn't buy it, then other libraries would follow suit and be like, well, it's just a bad book. We're not going to buy it. And that is a hugely responsible position that caused this book not to be published or not to be held on the New York Public Library until 1972. And there's some theories going around as to why they eventually did it. I mean, that was like the 25th anniversary. But on top of that, um, if you look at publishing standards, by this point, Barnes and Nobles, Walden Books, other big bookstores had popped up. Parents were making their own decisions about what to read. Librarians weren't the curators of knowledge much anymore or you didn't have to be that way. Books were cheaper. So Goodnight Moon, selling wild cakes off the shelves by at least the early 70s, because it was almost in obscurity. This book never, almost did not take off until it hit bookstores. And then parents just grabbed it up because kids dug it. They would read it. So yeah, be careful what you look at. Although, I mean, even since the 70s, the curation potential of libraries has gone way downhill. I don't care how many Caldecotts or Newberries you get. They don't sell books or they don't put books out anymore based on that. Publishing trends are all there. Put a couple vampires in it 10, 20 years ago. 
or eh, about 10 years ago, you probably would have sold a book, but not now. So yeah, that was the influential thing. That's the reason it was banned. For 25 years, the New York Public Library did not hold it. And there was even a list that came up recently when the New York Public Library looked up the most checked out books of all time. Goodnight Moon was not on there, even though it, by inflation standards, should have been because of this 25-year gap. It was fascinating that it was not on the list, even though it is one of the most checked out books of all time in every library that it's ever been checked out in. Just a popular goddamn book. And what is it about? Well, it's pretty simple. Let's get into the plot. Uh, it's a small rabbit. He's telling us about his room, which is green and has a bed and a fireplace and paintings, including one painting with bears and chairs. And there's this bowl full of mush and this quiet old lady that says hush. And that's honestly one of the creepier old things, because who is our narrator here? I mean, from what Margaret Wise Brown says, it is the little kid. Because he is saying, good night, moon, good night, dance. So then who is the old lady saying hush? Not going to lie, that creeps me out a little bit, because the kid is not saying it's grandma. It's not saying it's mom. It's saying it's an old lady. Sitting over there knitting, looking at him, saying, hush. And it's not even a lady, it's a rabbit. I don't know what you would call a lady rabbit if they have names. I'm sure they do. Right into, you know, on Band Library or Twitter, if you know the name for a rabbit lady. I'm not going to look it up, I don't have time. But anyway, the sun start, uh, the moon starts to come up, and he says, fuck it, and starts to say goodnight to everything around. Apparently this also came from a dream Margaret, or Miss Brown, had when she used to go to bed. And would say goodnight to everything in her room, and she had a dream that she'd done that. So this is based on her own experiences as a kid. So he starts to say goodnight, our little rabbit, and he said goodnight to the Cat's playing in yarn, and the lights are on, and the moon is just rising. You just see a sliver of it in the window. He says goodnight to all the shit we just saw and everything I just talked about. even turns around in the bed to talk about, to say goodnight to the bears and the chairs. And while he's saying goodnight to the socks and the clocks, he kind of sits in the bed and clutches his knees as the moon rises. A little more in the window. And the room grows darker, and the light by his bed grows a little brighter. But not the light in the fireplace. Is this some kind of technology commentary that we're talking about here? I don't know. Does the light by the bed grow brighter than the firelight, the natural light, the moonlight? Is the enhanced light by the bed more important? I don't know, but there it is. And then he says goodnight to nobody. First I thought the old lady had left. But apparently no, there's just a blank page and he says goodnight to nothing. Goodnight to the idea of there not being a person there. The existence of an existence. And then he says goodnight to the old lady, and the room goes darker still. And there's a little mouse that we've seen before crawling around a little bit. 
but this time it's going after the mush by the bed. What is in this mush? It's a little white. Who knows, maybe an oatmeal, maybe some kind of ground oats of some kind. But the moon has risen big and the mouse has come to feed. He says goodnight stars and goodnight air. The thing around him allows him to say goodnight. He says goodnight to it. As he goes darker and deeper. And the stars, if you pay attention to the windows, have changed places in every shot. As the little rabbit, now tucked into his bed, is in this growing darkness. The stars have changed. With the rising of the moon, with the darkening of the room. With the darkening of the fire. But the light stays by his bed. And in the little house, in the corner of the room, the bottom left corner of the room, stays lit up. And the mouse, after having his full of mush, I assume, because there is a little bit less mush. The mouse is in the window, staring through the window at the moon and the stars, and you wonder why the mouse is staring at the moon and the stars. Does he see the moon and the stars changing places? The stars drifting in and out from the bedroom window as the moon rises. Can't be more than 20, 30 minutes have passed. The moon does not rise that fast, kids. What is less is now more. The darkness has come. The light is out. The old lady is gone. Cat's in her chair. And everything goes dark. Good night. Now, that's our story. It's a... Well, the art definitely does tell the story. I mean, most of the text in the art is just, you know, good night moon, good night stars, good night lady in the chair, which is a creepy thing in itself. The whole thing is sort of unsettling in it. And I don't know, it's very different. The art style is very well done. If you really look at it, It's simplistic lines and colors, very tonal colors. There's no, you know, violets or eggshell. It's all greens, reds, blues, and yellows, primary colors, and some tertiaries in there for the green, I guess. It's very, I don't know, it's, it's dynamic in how things change because things change so subtly. You wouldn't even notice the mouse running around the room unless you'd read it hmm, once or twice. I read it a couple of times for this. Just seeing where things are going. The art tells the story itself. Now why the light is different from the firelight, the moonlight, all that. That has to be just uh, something you can control. I can only assume. Thinking about how the child could control turning off the light, but he can't control the firelight or the moonlight giving there some agency to the small rabbit as he, as he says goodnight to everything. But there's also a reading in this, of this unsettling concept that this book is about death. That there's an undercurrent of everything growing dark, uh, slowly going down. That we look at the moon and the stars, we say goodnight to everything in our room, because... Isn't goodnight just another form of goodbye? Hope to see you again. I mean, there's that old prayer, isn't there? Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray. 
Lord, my soul to keep if I die. Before I wake, I pray the sore mine. Soul to tank. Death and sleep have always been intertwined. Hell, even Hamlet had it, perchance to dream. I can't go with the whole thing. But it's always been there. The death is the eternal sleep. I mean, it's even calling sleeping with the fishes. To put this idea of going down and going down peacefully and on your own terms, saying goodbye to everything around you. Also, there's just some weird shit in this room. Uh, people dolls. This is a rabbit. Do they keep people as pets here? Do people exist like human beings? Because they're obviously human beings. They're not rabbit dolls. I, that's just very strange concept in this world that this kid rabbit and this old lady rabbit in this room that have these people dolls. It's just very uh, strange concept. And they are sort of people color. It's like a light orange. So, you know, you could go brown, black, you know, I mean, white, you know, sort of a non-human color. So you could assign whatever agency to it you wanted to. It's very, just very unsettling. Like, what is that there? Also, apparently these rabbits kill tigers because there's a big goddamn tiger rug on the floor. And it's never acknowledged. It's just there. Doesn't say goodnight to it that I remember, that I wrote down. Also, there's a very weird picture above the bookcase. It's an old lady, uh, and a, she's an old rabbit lady. She's fishing, and she's fishing for tiny rabbits. Like, there's a tiny rabbit in the stream, and she's got a carrot on her fishing pole, and she's, like, luring it in. It's super unsettling, and for some reason there's a tree that's been cut down in that little thing. I don't know what story or what point of this story that's supposed to take. They were drawing in children with this. They were carried on a stick. I, I don't get it. It's over the old lady that's in the room, so I assume it has some association with her. Maybe it is her and this kid, and they're just fucking around, or maybe that's how that's how this kid came to be in the great green room just really fucking if you really like look at the book it's it's kind of strange i don't know what's actually supposed to be going on in this story <laughs> or i mean in the in the overstory i guess of this story because the the basic concept is kid just saying goodnight to everything in his room but the way he approaches things the old lady not mom not grandma not auntie not tia not any other familial name you would give someone in this position just the old lady who says hush it's very this is a i don't know i got kind of more of a charge out of this than i thought i would uh what i recommended hell yeah uh it's it's great it's i even got and i get if you fun have fun over analyzing things like i do sometimes putting your own story the overarching story putting everything on there but as a simple kids book it, this totally works i mean history has borne out it's what 47 that's almost 80 years old it's done its job it's done its job damn well i mean, maybe 70 years old i don't math it's it's just really well done so yeah pick up fucking good night moon margaret wise brown clement heard it's just solid book and that'll be the end of our little episode today. 
Uh, join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bandlibrary. Become a friend of the library. We're actually starting something new. And I'm going to say I save this to the end of this episode because I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out new things for the Patreon people to get other than get the episodes a little early. Usually it's a day, hopefully a week. But also, and the whole back catalog thing. But also, I'm going to probably start doing at least once a month and we'll see how it hits off if they like it. I'm going to do band TV episodes. So by the time this comes out, you, there should probably already be a band episode of Married with Children that wasn't shown on the air for almost like 20 years, I think. I don't know, about 12 years. Math. You know, like five, six years, whatever. Anyway, um, 11 years. Yeah, it was banned for 11 years. Nobody saw it until it hit streaming. So yeah. Or... Anyway, th- that story about that will be on there. I haven't recorded it yet. I just did all the notes and everything last night. I think it'll be fun, or at least it'll be more of this. And I don't think band TV episodes really fit on this feed, so if you want a little bit more, go over on there. May do some movies coming up. I don't know. I'm just having fun here. We're having fun over on the Patreon. Or follow us, you know, Twitter, at Band Library, and wherever else. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Stay in. Read a book. Music, Dances and Dames, by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.